money, deals, tribal knowledge, resources, and training. We are Texas's largest real estate investor association at TexasStarterKit.com. My name is Shanoa Grove. Welcome to the show. Well, hello, everyone. Shanoa Grove here with Texas Rias. We have a very special guest on the Texas Rias podcast today, and that is Hugh Hilton. Uh, Hugh Hilton is the chief executive officer and uh, the uh, managing uh, director at Alvarez and Massal Capital Real Estate. Uh, has been obviously in real estate for a very long time and comes from a family of uh, real estate and real estate investors. And he's going to spend a little bit of time with us today, just sharing with us what he's learned about investing over all of these years. And he's also helped a lot of real estate investors and business entrepreneurs get started, uh, kind of craft their vision and make sure to kind of push forward on their vision to implementation. Uh, He's coached some of the best uh, out there and helped them uh, increase their business. And he's here with us today to share with us some of those same uh, values and some of those same uh, ideas that that will help us do the same for us in our business. So a uh, big welcome, uh, Hugh. I uh, would love to hear if you'd like to give some of the members of our association. Uh, this is Texas's largest uh, association of real estate investors, uh, where we get together every week and just talk about some of the what I call tribal knowledge when it comes to real estate investing, share our best practices, and just kind of grow together as a, as a group to make sure that we're all making the good decisions when we're investing. And make sure that uh, we're moving in the right direction. So I uh, love to hear some of the other things you might have to say as we introduce you this morning. Well, thank you, Shanoa. I appreciate that. Uh, give it maybe a little background uh, on myself. Uh, as a little boy, my father was in the stock investing uh, sector of business and he used to come home at dinner and, and he'd be all upset that some guy made a trade in New York that affected his shareholdings in Michigan, that he had no ability to see it coming, nothing. It just happened and he had no control over the value of his investments. And I thought, well, that's not a very good business model. If somebody can push a button in New York and affect your net worth in Detroit. So I said, I'm not gonna do that. I said, but you know, I think if I did real estate, I would be able to build the best project and my competition would be on the other three quarters, and it didn't really matter what was going on in New York, downtown Manhattan. It wasn't going to affect my project in suburban Detroit. So I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be in real estate. So um, I, And then we used to talk, we used to talk at dinner about the corporate ladder. And I said, geez, there must be this ladder everybody has to climb up. That must be really hard to get on the bottom rung because everybody's trying to go up the corporate ladder. So I said, hmm, I got to figure out a way to maybe get about 20% up the corporate ladder and go in there so I won't have to elbow everybody else out at the bottom to get on the first run. So I said, I know what I'll do there. Uh, I'll leverage education. So I said, that's what I'm going to do. And so I was pretty focused as a kid uh, as to what I wanted to do. And so my education, I focused on my education. So I got a BBA and... um, uh, finance and uh, real estate and an MBA and real estate finance. And then it was an interesting story. Uh, I, my friend, Brian Marcel, who I work for Alvarez and Marcel, we went to high school together and undergrad and grad school. And we decided 
when we decided to go to grad school, we both applied. Um, I didn't do that great on the GMATs, but I graduated second in my class. And so I figured, yeah, that's not a big deal. I had straight A's basically, and I applied, I don't get in. So I go to the admissions office and I knock on the door. I said, the guy said, uh, Jim, I said, I don't understand this. I basically got straight A's in business school and, and now I can't get into grad school. And he looked and he pointed down to something in like his open desk drawer. So this tells me you don't have what it takes to compete in our business school. And I said, what are you pointing at, Jim? He goes, oh, oh well, we, we did a survey where we correlated GMAT scores to performance in our grad school. And quite frankly, with your GMAT score, you couldn't compete in our grad school. So, so I thought, well, that's great. So I went out, I got a job as a commercial real estate broker and I took the GMAT again and did score 250 points higher and then um, applied and got in. So I went back to him and I, I knocked on the door and he goes, I go, remember me? And he goes, oh yeah, we remember you. We figured you cheated on the GMAT exam the second time you took it. We just can't figure out how you did it. Nobody scores 250 points higher. And so I'm thinking to myself, I'm thinking like, wow. First of all, I pretty much graduate with straight A's. And, and then he calls me stupid. And then I take the exam again and I do better. He calls me a cheat. So I go like, this is amazing. So I, I, I say to him, oh, okay, Jim, you want me to tell you how I did it? He goes, yeah, oh, sure. And I said, okay, well, the first time I went to the library and I studied and did all this stuff and I did really poorly. So here's what I did the second time. I was standing in the doorway. So I leaned back and I looked to the right and I looked to the left as if to see if anybody was coming that could hear what I was going to say. And so I looked back at him and his eyes got really big. He thought, this guy's going to tell me how he cheated on the GMAT to get into grad school. <laughs> so I look at him, I go, well, Jim, this is what I did the second time. I said, the night before the exam, I went to the V-Bell and I got drunk. What do you think about that? He goes, ha ha. <laughs> I go, if you think that's funny, the next thing you think I'm going to say, you're going to think it's hilarious. He goes, what's that? I said, if you think I'm paying you $1 as a grad after you call me stupid and a cheat, never going to happen, Jim. So um, that in, in the, in between when I graduated undergrad and I got, I got in, I started in January, I was, as I said, as a commercial real estate broker. And so I, I tied up a big apartment deal. That was a great deal. I knew the real estate. I went to a meeting with a bunch of attorneys and they were talking back and forth and I couldn't understand anything they were saying. So at the end of the meeting, all I knew is I didn't have a deal anymore. I go like, how did that happen? I said, I, you know, I couldn't figure out what they're saying, but I know it's great real estate. And all I know is that I have no deal now. So I said, okay. I said, um, I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen to me. So I said, when I finish with grad school, I'll go out, get another job for a year. And then I'm going to go to law school so I can figure out exactly what these attorneys are saying. So I'm never in a meeting with an attorney and I don't understand what they're saying. So I think, you know, the, the story there is, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a bigger picture for me. Um, it's all about two things. It's, it's, it's innately people are right-handed or they're left-handed. And I was born left-handed and turned into a right-handed person. So innately, I'm very curious, um, but I'm also very analytical because I got turned into a right-handed person. So one of the things that I found in my career is that 
I see things and I had a very interesting career and I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, what I found is that most right-handed people aren't particularly creative or curious. So it was easy for me and we'll get into some of these, how I use that in real estate. It was easy for me to help maneuver right-handed people all the time. But also I was then, because I got turned into a right-handed person, I was super analytical. So, and all of the people that I now kind of coach and advise young entrepreneurs, I tell them, you know, you, you have a right and a left part of your brain and, and right-handed people are primarily left-brained and left-handed people are primarily right-brained. So your right brain is your creativity and your left brain is your analytical skills. So what I tell kids is that, listen, if you're right-handed, you have a tendency not to be very creative. So it's really important for you to really consciously engage your your, your right brain in terms of reading and, and really trying to think outside of the box. And I tell right-handed people that, um, uh, excuse me, left-handed people that you're super creative and curious, but you're not very organized and, and you're not very analytical. So you should really focus on accounting and finance courses to develop the other side of your brain. So I say it really simple to, so kids understand. I said, now listen, think of it this way. If you were in a street fight and you had to fight me with one hand behind your back and I'm using two hands, basically, you know, like both sides of my brain, it's going to be really hard for you to beat me. I said, so my advice to you is that you need to develop both sides of your brain to optimize your investment skills and, and basically your financial future. So something that a lot of people don't realize and and I didn't really realize it until later in life because um, I just knew that I was different in that because I had started off in real estate then I had about a 20-year uh, detour into corporate restructuring and then I came back to real estate but in all my corporate restructuring account, uh, assignments I solved you know basically had to come in company was in distress a lot of people's Jobs were at risk, their livelihoods were at risk. So it's a, a lot of pressure to be able to figure it out. And I was always able to figure out situations where everybody would say, you know, this is not fixable. This is such a disaster, it's not fixable. And I would look at it and I would see things that right-handed people didn't even see. They'd go like, how did you think of that? And I say, oh, pretty simple. And so using those two skills really helps you succeed in whatever you're doing, it doesn't matter whether it's real estate or you know any type of endeavor. The first, the first thing that comes to mind is you, you've got to evaluate, develop a fact base, and then create some options to fix it. So, back to what I was saying is, um, after I went to law school, I then got out of law school, um, went to work for. Um, a company called Jones Lang Wooten, which is now uh, Jones Lang LaSalle, and then proceeded to uh, work for Bank of America Investment Real Estate, where I was a senior, uh, senior vice president like in four years at Bank of America. And that's when I realized that I wasn't going to be a big corporate guy, because the higher I went up in the bank, the more incompetent the people were. So I said, this is not what I thought corporate life was going to be. So... I then came down to run a 
big pension fund advisory firm. And at, let's say, what was it? And I, I became president of that when I was like 34. And, and then um, four years later, in 1988, T-bills were 9% and real estate yields were 5%. And the general rule of thumb with um, real estate is since it's a riskier investment than buying 10-year T-bills, there's generally a 3% cushion between the risk-free rate and what your cap rate would be on the fairly low-risk real estate investment. So if T-bills are 9 real estate yields should be 12 and they were five. So I was managing about a $2.8 billion portfolio. Uh, and I went to the CEO, I was the president. I said, hey, listen, there's something wrong here. And I said, uh, we, need, we need to sell everything, go to cash, wait until the market comes back and then buy everything on the cheap. And he said, well, why would we do that? We lose our asset management fees. And I said, have you ever heard of the word fiduciary? He goes, yes. And I said, well, that's why. He goes, yeah, okay, I, I hear you. I, I appreciate the thought, but I think we'll stay the course. And I said, okay, let me know how that works out for you. And he said, what'd you say? I said, let me know how that works out for you. He goes, what does that mean? I said, that means I quit. He goes, you can't quit. You're running the whole thing. And I said, no, I just quit a minute ago. And I said, let me know how it works out for you. He goes, well, why would you do that? I said, because I sleep really well at night knowing I'm always doing what's in the best interest of our client and what's in the best interest of our client is to go to cash because something is going to happen in the real estate market. I don't know what it is or when it's going to happen, but the market is not in balance. So I said, I won't be out of here in a month. I'll be out of here by the end of the day. So packed up all my stuff. So kind of rule number one for, for people that, want to invest in, and, and, in whatever they're doing in their career. Um, my father told me this is a great, it's a great little rule that I've always lived by, which is there's only two things that someone can't take away from you. I mean, he said, basically they can take away your house, your property, they can take away everything, but what they can't take away is your education and your integrity. So he said, guard them with your life. And that's, I've really held that close to my heart during all these years. And it's really held me in good stead. So I always, I have a, a motto, you know, do the, do the right thing and the money will take care of itself. And, and, and that's interesting. Uh, integrity is one of the main things that Warren Buffett looks for when he's hiring someone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, you know, and obviously someone who's in, you know, someone who's intelligent as well, but he basically said, if you hire someone with who does not have integrity, but is intelligent, That's you true. might, you might find yourself in a lot of trouble. Right. But if you find someone who is, uh, has an, you know, strong integrity and a strong belief system and, you know, and also, I mean, you know, so that really demonstrated, you know, so that was a yield curve inversion. Right. And we had one of those about, um, I think we're living through one even still right now that started probably about two years ago. And, and it is, and, and in the eighties and, and, you know, I, I'm from, I'm actually a fourth generation real estate investor. And, you know, in the eighties, like, you know, uh, you know, having kind of lived through that as, as a younger woman, but kind of see how it affected my family as, you know, uh, real estate investors. Um, that is something, you know, there, there are things there, there are flags that are raising up 
but it's hard to, and I think, you know, your, you know, boss CEO of the company at the time, you know, it's it's that cognitive, you know, dissonance and that cognitive bias just saying, well, things are going great now. So why would I move out of the position that I'm in, even though there's this yellow flag going up? So it's like, there's, there's fear of missing out FOMO, you know, going kind of both ways. And, and, you know, you, you know, you brought up the fiduciary, you know, responsibility it's, and, and that's a, you know, I mean, I don't envy the position, you know, as long as you understood it, I don't, think I envy the position that either of you guys were in. It's like, you know, do I tell my you know, sh- shareholders that, hey, we're out, even though, you know, this could have another six month run, another 12 month run, because I know what's coming or, you know, and you can never time the market. Right. So, I mean, how do you balance? How did, how did you feel kind of a little bad for him when you said like, I'm out in that moment or. Interesting. Uh, if you think about it, I mean, I was like, I'm 37 years old, I'm running a $2.8 billion real estate portfolio. I'm living, I don't want to say I'm living the good life, but I'm pretty successful. So I basically walked away from all that. And as I was driving home, I thought, you know what? That's the right thing to do, Hugh. It was all about integrity, but not a lot of strategic career planning took place in that. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually, was funny, I called up my friend Brian Marcel. Who, who was Alvarez Marcel, it's now a $2 billion revenue company with 5,000 employees. And I said, hey, Brian, do you have any real estate um, related issues with your corporate restructures that you do? And he goes, yeah, they all have real estate issues. And I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to start my own company. And I said, I'll be a stringer for you. You can hire me by the hour and I'll do the real estate work for your corporate uh, distressed companies. And so he said, okay. So I started my own company out of literally out of my my next, my partner, we lived in two townhouses next door. So we actually started our company literally out of his garage. And I'll never forget the day when we were doing a fair amount of business with the Japanese that that the, in those times. And, and I come out of my come out of my townhouse and we're down by the beach and to, to take a run. And there's these three Japanese guys standing in the middle of the street and they're looking at these business cards and they're looking around going, they, 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 they were our business cards and they figured we were in an office and they're going like, I don't understand this. This says this is the address. I don't see any office around here. And I thought, okay, well, that's maybe the time we should move into an office. But uh, it was, it was, I never forget the day when these guys are standing on the street, with their suits on looking around and going, I don't understand this. I don't see an office building around here that these guys work out of. So it was it was pretty interesting, and and I found this is very fascinating in terms of investing people's money because last in the late 2019 I was raising capital, and and we had a very interesting business strategy that was very successful at the time, and I was talking to uh, one of the you know top ten largest family offices in the country, and meeting with the head of the office in Connecticut. And I was explaining the strategy to him and it was fascinating. So the guy's sitting back and, and, it's, and it was very interesting because, you know, he, he had this air about him of, you know, I'm the smartest guy within a three mile radius. So I'm, I'm giving my pitch and doing this. And at the end, he sits back and he kind of leans back and, you know, kind of looks down his nose at me and he goes, I like your strategy. It's a good strategy. Um, tell you what, 
you find a nice $100 million deal, uh, you come to me and I'll fund it. I looked at him, I said, you're never going to hear from me. He went like, what did you say? I've never had anybody say that to me. I, he said, why would you say that? I said, simple. I said, I can't. I said, I'm going to save you from what's called selective recollection. He goes, what does that mean? I said, well, since this is a, a joint venture relationship, we're going to find a deal. We're going to bring it to you. You're going to say, yep, that's a great deal. I'm in. And then something's going to happen in the economy that nobody foresaw, and it's going to negatively impact the deal. And then all of a sudden, this deal that you thought was a great deal, and you voted on the investment committee to do it, will all of a sudden be this crappy deal that you put me into. I said, and it had nothing to do with me. It was completely out of my control, the economic event that happened that would trigger it. And that was in... December 2019, mm -hmm. what happened in March 2020. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is we sold all our income producing properties in 2019. So we didn't have any income producing properties with tenants in 2020. So we had no issues. So, so that I, now I'm not going to say that was strategic, but what I did say to him is I said, I'm too late in the economic cycle to do a big deal. I said, because I don't have the time to reposition it, release it and exit before something's going to happen. I said, I don't know what it is, but something's going to happen because. Did you say that because of kind of the, you know, the markets are cyclical and, you know, we were in sort of an up market for, you know, since 2012. And it's like, you know, I, you know, some shoes going to drop or, you know, it's like everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And um, something's going to come and punch us. We don't know what it's going to be, but exactly. you know, how do you, how do you balance? How do you, you know, it's, I feel like the, you know, from 2008 until 2012, we had probably the longest sideways market that we ever, you know, I had ever uh, experienced. Mm -hmm. And then we, from 2012 until, you know, 2020, we had the longest up market that I, you know, cause normally it seems like market cycles, three to five years up, one to three years down, three to five years up, one to three years down. I mean, there's stuff on either end of that, but we right. had this extremely, you know, and, and I kind of gave the long market that we were, in, we were in just some grace in terms of it was going to go further just because we were sideways for so long, right? And because the fundamentals were different, for example, than they were in, you know, 2003 through 2006, but, you know, I, you know, it's like, I always feel like something new is going to come and, you know, kind of punch you in the face that you're not, you're not heads up aware of. And, and, you know, I know that our job and, you know, I think of my job as an entrepreneur is to look for the disruptions that are, you know, imminent or coming mm -hmm. and, and prepare for those. And, and as they, and as they hit, create, you know, uh, strategies for that, uh, create a solution for that, create a process for that. So you can hand it to somebody else. So you can be heads up looking for that next, you know, solution strategy. So is that, is that kind of what you were, you know, indicating to, to him that's like, this is a, we've had a great run and, and it's just hard to say when it's going to let go again. And what I basically said to him is I said, I'm looking for a partner that wants to do some smaller deals now wait for the correction, then jump in and go long on those deals. I said, you know, because I've run huge hotel casinos and, and I'm acutely aware of what happens when there's economic disruption 
in, in real estate because the hotel is really an operating entity inside a piece of real estate with daily rentals. So I've been through that twice. You know, I, I, I was brought in in my restructuring career um, right after 9-11 to take over one of the major casinos on, on the Las Vegas Strip. And that basically everybody said, this can't be fixed. And the NOI was at the time $15 million. And um, so I stayed there a couple of days. I looked around and I said, no, I think I can fix this. I said, this has nothing to do with all the design issues that you guys, and this again, this is a right-handed person talking to a you know, bilateral person. So I looked at it and I said, I don't think it has anything. I said to myself, I don't think this has anything to do with the design. It has to do with the operations. It's, the fact is that there's no quote stickiness at a casino. Everybody would check in, walk across the street to the Bellagio or next door to Paris to game, eat and be entertained. I said, so it has nothing to do with design. It has everything to do with the programming inside the casino. So I changed out the restaurants, opened up a nightclub, changed out the programming, the showroom, changed their gaming strategy. And with eight, 18 months, I took EBITDA from 15 million to 65 million and uh, sold it to Planet Hollywood. Hmm. So, and the debt when I came in was at 50 cents, the senior debt. And when I exited, it was trading at 107 cents. So and everybody's just sort of, I don't know how you did that. I said, because I just see things that right-handed people don't see. And then I act on it because then I analyze them to make sure I'm, what I'm seeing has substance and, and has materiality to it. And when it does, I execute. And, and our motto at my current company is pretty simple. It's faster, better, more efficient. So everything we do, we strive to do it faster, better, and more efficient than the competition. And, you know, I'll give you just a couple examples of that. So we had our new strategy. Um, we, we went out, we bid on an asset and I, I lost the deal. And I said, okay, I, and, and I it's funny because I've really only, of all the deals we bid on and closed on, there's only, and there's only three that we didn't win the bid. And that was the, the first one before I changed my strategy implemented faster, better, more efficient. And then the last two deals we've been on because the market's so crazy, the guys were willing to pay prices that I just wasn't willing to pay. But the first deal we had was, was this kind of being creative. So I see this building. I really like the building. And um, so I said to my broker, I said, I'd like to buy. And he goes, you know, it's, it's an escrow. And I said, really? I said, so, so most people would have said, what? They would say, okay, it's an escrow. I'm not going to waste any time on it. So that's not what I did. What I did is I, being curious, I said, when's the deposit due? He said, well, it's due Friday at noon. I said, okay, great. Set up an appointment with the owners for Friday at 1230. And my premise was most real estate people are lazy. They're not very on time. So I said, I'm going to just gamble that this guy doesn't have his money in at noon on Friday. So I drive down there. Making the contract unenforceable so the seller could back out if they want to, especially if they get a higher offer from someone who's also ready to go and really sees the opportunity that might exist there. Hello. So I go down there. I introduce myself to the uh, owners and I say, this is a great building. I'd like to buy it. And they said, well, you can't. It's an escrow. And this is at 1230. Okay. The money was supposed to be there at noon. 
I said, really? He said, I said, yeah. I said, so when's the deposit supposed to be due? He said, well, it's today at noon. I said, oh, look, it's 1230. Let's call the escrow company, see if the deposit's there. Call the escrow company, sure ship the deposit's not there. So now the seller's going like, whoa. And I said, imagine that. Somebody who didn't do what he said he was going to do. I said, how do you like to do business with somebody that actually does what he says he's going to do? He go, what does that mean? I said, that means when I say I'm going to put my money in the escrow, it's going to be there. When I say I'm going to close, it's going to close. And I said, and you know why you can believe me? And then they go, no, why? I said, because I'm not a real estate person. I'm a restructuring professional. I said, and if I don't do what I say I'm going to do in the restructuring world, I have a really short career in restructuring. And I've had a very long, lucrative career. So how about this? How about you cancel escrow? I'll have my money in tomorrow morning. I said, okay. So I canceled, called up the escrow company, canceled escrow. The other buyer tried to put his money in at four o'clock. Escrow said, sorry, it's canceled. You were late on deposit. He goes, what? I said, yeah, too bad, pal. Next time I have your money in on time. So, um, and then another time I was bidding on a big project that uh, Lincoln owned, uh, about a hundred thousand square foot project. And we, there was, you made your initial offers and then you typically have what's called a best and final, a second round. So I really liked this project. So I made sure I made it to, this, to the second round. So there were five of us in the second round. And I, so I called up the principal of Lincoln and I said, hey, uh, I said, I really wanna buy this building. How about this? How about um, I, we agree on a price and I, because I kind of knew where the price was going to end up. So I, I, I kind of went halfway between my current offer and that where I thought the price was going to settle. So it wasn't, I wasn't paying full price. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll negotiate a contract, a binding contract with you between now and Wednesday at five o'clock. And I'll have put my deposit in at that time. And if we don't agree to terms, I said, you have nothing to lose because you have a best and final 15 minutes later at 5 p.m. on Wednesday. There it goes. Oh, okay. So that we you know that was a discussion was Monday at 5 p.m. So spent Tuesday and Wednesday negotiating contracts, signed a contract at 4:45. Bingo! Everybody else made their offer at five, and Lincoln said, "I'm sorry, the project's been sold. It's under contract." Everybody said, "What are you talking about? This supposed to be a best and final." My thought was, "You thought there was going to be a best and final. I never thought there was going to be a best and final. I was going to do whatever I could to cut off the best and final. So I basically bought out the building from under everybody. So it's thinking like that outside of the box that I think separates average investors from great investors. And I, you know, the list goes on and on and on in terms of what I do to just disrupt processes. And I'm, I'm a consummate disruptor. And that's because I'm very creative. And, and uh, basically, there's, I basically boiled it down because I've I've coached JT now for a long time and he's asked me to give speeches and stuff. So I said, okay, if I'm going to give a speech or a chat, I said, I better figure out what is my formula for success? And it's, it's a very simple formula. I call it the six C's. And first C is choice because everything starts with a choice. I said, and people don't like being told what to do. So I give them a choice and I can give you a great example. I was doing a three and a half billion dollar uh, sale to a Chinese buyer and um, I've dealt with the Chinese a fair amount and, and they have a different, how should I say, they have a different basic concept of doing business. And so 
I was very concerned that where I was going to, it was going to end up being in a, a negotiation process that was not, uh, how should I say, completely transparent and ethical. So instead of worrying about it, I said to the gentleman, I said, how would you like to negotiate this? And he said, what do you mean? I said, you know what I mean? He goes, no, well, what do you mean? I said, well, we can either do it above board, transparent, or we can do it below board, deceitful and deceptive. I said, so I can do either way equally well. How would you like to negotiate? Figuring he's never gonna say, well, I wanna be deceitful and deceptive. And he said, well, I wanna above board, of course. And I said, okay, great. Now, if I catch you sliding back into a deceitful pattern, I said, I'm gonna smack you around pretty good because all oh, that'll never happen. I go, good, well, this will be great. We're gonna have a good time. So term sheet comes back and I, we had agreed on one extension of the loan and it comes back with two extensions. So I call him up and I say, uh, hey, John, remember that discussion we had about how we're gonna negotiate? He goes, yep. And I said, well, you know, uh, we agreed to one three-year extension, not two. So I can only assume that when you're typing the letter of intent that your little pinky inadvertently slipped when you meant to hit one and hit two by mistake. Is that what happened, John? He starts laughing and he goes, oh, no, no. He goes, I, I understand. I hear you. I said, well, we're never going to have to have another discussion like this again, are we, John? He goes, no, 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 no. We're never going to have to have another discussion. I said, great. So then fast forward, we're negotiating. Now we're, now we're doing all the documentation. You can imagine, you know, some big transactions. So we're in New York. Uh, we're in Sherman Sterling's office. And, and before we started that journey, I said, John, I said, I just want to have one agreement with you now that we're taking the letter of intent and we're now going to documentation contracts. He says, sure, what's that? I said, I want to agree that we're going to have fun. He goes, what do you mean fun? I said, well, you know, I have this kind of experience of patterns as the number of zeros increase in a transaction, the asshole factor seems to increase at the same level of size. And I said, so let's just dispense with, you know, that I said, because there's nothing that says the bigger the deal, the bigger the asshole, it just seems to work that way. So why don't we agree that we're going to have fun? He goes, oh, okay. So we're there for the fourth deal, the fourth meeting, because this is basically took a couple months to get done. So there's a knock at the door. And um, one of the people who scheduled, because uh, Sherman Sterling had an entire floor of conference rooms, just a huge m &A law firm in New York. They said, well, excuse me, can we see you out in, the, out in the lobby for one second? I said, sure. So I walk out and she goes, you know, we're just mystified. And I go like, what? She goes, well, you know, no one that ever comes on in any of these conference rooms ever laughs. It's so serious. And every time you come in, you're in there laughing, having a good time. What exactly are you doing in there? He said, we're doing a three and a half billion dollar uh, sales transaction. And so what happened is fast forward. Now we get to the end of the deal, okay? And so we've had a great time process. We've really gotten to know one another well and, and really understood the whole basis of the transaction. So we get to the end, one of his investors buys out, backs out, and now he's $7 million short. So um, my analyst comes in and he tells me, I says, so what do you think we should do? He goes, well, we got to add it to the loan balance. I said, really? I said, so you think that's the only answer? He goes, yeah. I said, okay, well, 
And this is the, the second, the third C, where the second C is curiosity, the third C is creativity. I said, so have a seat. So I called the guy up. I said, John, I understand you're $7 million short. He goes, yeah. And I said, so what do you like to do with that, John? And I said, um, I said, hold on one second. I said, um, he said, I want to add it to the loan balance. I said, hmm, okay. I said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll add it to the loan balance, but I'm not going to add seven. I'm going to add 27. He goes, 27 million? I said, yeah, why? And he said, he said, why would I do that? I said, simple, because the guy that backed out of the deal was going to make 56 million and I'm only charging you 27. So it's really smart that, you know, he gave me a call because you're making more money now by him falling out of the deal. And he goes, oh, okay, I'll pay 27 then. I'll add 27 to the loan balance. So I hang up the phone and I look at the analyst and, I, and he has this just look of disbelief on his face. Like, how did you do that? And I said, next time you think there's only one solution to an answer, be a little creative and figure out if there's some other options. And the bank was, the bank was so amazed that I took the seven and turned it into 27 that I said, they said, you know what, whatever you want in terms of access to our non-performing loans, we're happy to give you unfettered access that you can buy because we're so amazed that you were able to add $21 million of value to the transaction just by doing what you did. And they said, we never would have thought of that. So I think it's just a lot of things like that. So those are the first three. The fourth is commitment. So when you commit to do something, you've got to follow through and do it. The fifth is compassion. You have to have compassion. You just can't be a dictator or, or just a complete jerk in terms of your relationships with people. And the last one is communication. You have to be an effective communicator. And that's both written, verbal, nonverbal. Uh, so there's, and then listening is a huge issue too, because a lot of people don't listen. So you have to really listen to what people are saying and try to understand where they're coming from and what their needs are. So the, the six C's are very helpful in any business year. I love it. Well, thank you so much for spending some uh, time with us today and uh, working through that, educating us a little bit. I really appreciate it. I I love some of those uh, core principles that you have. And, uh, you know, I talk to a lot of right-brained and left-brained people and I give them each different advice based on my same experience with them as well, because they do act differently and, and they do need to be coached in different ways. And uh, I've, I've certainly experienced that as well. And, and I love um, uh, the idea of curiosity. In fact, you can't really see it here, but I've got a little post-it note that's actually on top of my computer and it's super tiny, but it says curiosity. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, that's, uh, that's one of the things that, you know, you, you will learn, learn more when you are, you know, being active in that conversation and taking the time to be curious. Um, and I will say that uh, for me, every, you know, every morning uh, I, I take a walk, we have a little pond on our property and I have a, a prayer stone there. And every day I ask uh, to be blessed with more compassion. And uh, one of it's, it's not a C word, uh, but it, it, it is energy. I ask for like energy so that I can be present. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, you know, in, entwined in all of those different things, you know, that energy and that presence you know, and, and, and part of that also is part of listening as well. Uh, and the communication piece 
Um, and uh, so, so I, I like how those things kind of align between us and I uh, appreciate you sharing your, your story and your background and, and giving us some uh, great uh um, uh, you know, thoughts along the way. And Hugh, just thank you so much for your time and spending time with uh, the members here over at Texas RIAs and uh, look forward to uh, seeing you soon. Have a wonderful day. I wish you all the best and, and your, your group of investors all the best and in, in their investing. And hopefully there's a couple little nuggets that they can extract from our chat. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. You have a great day. We are Texas's largest real estate investor association at TexasStarterKit.com. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe, comment, or share with other investors. Or join us directly at TexasStarterKit.com.